This is the current federal tax developments for the week of February the 5th, 2024. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers and talking to you this week from Phoenix. We're going to take a look at a few developments that took place during the week. We're going to continue our discussion of the bipartisan extenders bill. Uh, this week, noting that it did pass the House and we'll discuss its future in the U.S. Senate moving forward. Also, as part of the deal to get this through the House, the Speaker of the House has agreed to bring up a limited single-year salt cap relief bill that should come to a vote this week. At least that was the plan. Obviously, if it doesn't, things get more interesting in the House because, in theory, uh, certain Republican members agreed not to totally mess up how the House is operating, uh, you know, by a lot, as long as they were allowed to bring this to the floor. We'll see how it moves going forward. We'll also talk about the fact that tax filing season officially opened up, and Harris did announce there's going to be some improved information, they claim, in the Where's My Refund app on the web for taxpayers, so that can be helpful. And finally, we're going to talk about a cautionary tale that was written up by Kelly Phillips Herb on the Forbes website regarding a phishing attack on a CPA firm in Texas uh, and the mess that created how it got through, what the issue is, how you can try to limit the, the exposure to this, and also why don't assume this isn't going to happen to you because you're just a small firm. Uh, yeah, it can happen to anybody, and we'll talk about some of the issues that are in play. So let's start out talking about that bipartisan extenders bill. This is House Resolution 7024, the Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act of 2024. It passed the House Representatives on January the 31st of 2024. And it did so rather rapidly. This is one of those notes of how Congress works. Um, it's a story I heard or a quote quip I heard on a podcast, as I recall, years ago, but was discussing that Congress has two speeds, glacial and light speed, and they can move between those two with no warning whatsoever. The House appeared to be kind of moving in glacial mode uh, in the early part of last week, but then suddenly on Wednesday, everything came together and we were at a vote in no time flat. No time flat, we were there, things were going. So the bill passed, again, unchanged. That was also a big deal. There had been a lot of discussion that certain members wanted to make changes to the bill. Uh, most of the changes revolve around the child tax credit, either imposing more conditions on it on the Republican side or liberalizing it, make it more like what we had in 2021 on the Democrat side. Uh, so that was really the main battle was, you know, were there, were there going to be attempts at amending it? And the bigger question at that point becomes, especially if the amendments pass, and to be realistic, the Republican amendments would always have had a better chance of passing than the Democrat ones just because of the nature of the voting in the House. Uh, would that then just kill the deal in the Senate regardless? So it was kind of interesting. The chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee did spend a lot of time lobbying for the bill, uh, dealing with certain complaints, dealing with uh, some reports that it was going to allow people who were, you know, in essence, in the country illegally to get the child tax credit. Uh, he pointed out that, no, it wasn't changing any of the rules required for social security numbers and the like. But anyway, lots of things were happening. It did finally go to a vote. It was also reported that a number of business groups were pushing hard and Grover Norquist was making calls uh, because the business side of this are the things that the Republicans have been trying to get fixed 
um, for the last you know couple of years. It did pass on a motion to suspend the rules, and it passed by a vote of 357 to 70, and that's in favor. And that requires a two-thirds majority under the House rules for a bill to pass. That allows you to bring it to the floor quickly and bypass the Rules Committee, where there were some people there that would like to have amended the, uh, amended the act. So using this method, uh, in essence, it enabled the uh, basically the Speaker of the House, uh, to avoid the risk that some of his own members uh, might decide to block this from coming to the floor. Traditionally, the Rules Committee votes to bring something to the floor because the Speaker of the House, you know, generally only brings bills that he wants to come to the floor. The Rules Committee is rigged that way. So generally, you can't get a vote out of the Rules Committee to get the bill to come to the floor unless you actually have, you know, all the Republicans there on your side. So a couple of Republicans or a vote just to move it to the floor and accept the Rules Committee report also takes a majority. And since at this point they're down a few people anyway, we've had a few Republicans leave, not yet been replaced. So I think right now their majority, they can lose two votes uh, before losing a majority vote. So yeah, it's kind of iffy. So what they did is they went around, they suspended the rules, and then it passed overwhelmingly. It didn't have any trouble getting the two-thirds vote. Now, that in theory is good news, but we'll talk about why that may not matter. The actual breakdown of the vote, uh, it's interesting. It was it passed by two thirds majorities in both parties, but there was significantly more Republican opposition than Democrat to this. And that could play out in the Senate because we expect in the Senate there'll be a similar higher level of Republican resistance to this bill. Then there'll be Democratic resistance to the bill. So we expect that on that issue, right? We did have, you know, basically though, you can see the votes weren't close in either party. The difficulty is getting it to the floor. In the Senate, that may be the same difficulty of getting it to the floor. That goes under the vote for closure, which means that they need to get over 60 votes to bring the bill to the floor. And if they have 41 people opposing it, you know, you have 41 senators oppose it, that's not a majority but it's enough to keep it from coming to a vote. So we do still have some issues there. Uh, the reports later in the week did suggest there were some people that thought, well, you know, if it passes the House by a really big margin, and clearly the chair of Senate Finance had been pushing to get this thing in by the time that the IRS opened up tax season on the 29th. Obviously, we've missed that date, but the idea of being an overwhelming vote might allow them to just push it over the top, bring it to a vote quickly by suspending their rules, and we could have all of this in place at least within a few days after the start of tax season. But turns out that does not appear to be happening. Reports we have, now these things, again, they could change just like the House did. So we could go from suddenly nothing's happening, nothing's happening. And then one afternoon you, you know, check the news uh, and discover that, hey, guys, this whole thing's passed. So keep your eyes on it. But right now it appears there may be more issues in the Senate. The Senate is scheduled to go out on recess beginning on February 12th. That means essentially if they're going to pass it, they need to pass it this week. And here's the other problem. If the Senate does make any amendments, and certainly there are a few people out there that want it amended for various purposes, if they did make any of those amendments, that would send it to conference and have to go back through the House again. So again, if the Senate doesn't just pick it up and vote it and vote on it without making any changes 
then the chances are we're going to be waiting until early March because they're not coming back till March once they kick out on this recess. So we'll you know, we have to keep our eyes on that. That's a problem, but one we're kind of aware would be there. Now, the most important thing to remember at this point, just like last point, last week, I should say, it's not clear if this bill is going to pass. It's not clear if it does pass, if it will come out unchanged or if there'll be additional items added to it. You got to be careful there. And if it does become law, it's not clear when the timing will be. And that's kind of an important issue because as you're aware, you know, this is a bill that would make changes to the law can impact us on returns that are being filed now. And we'll talk a little bit about that, but yeah, later. But that's a real question people have. Should we go ahead and file or should we wait? Now, related to this is another bill that got introduced at this on the same day it passed, House Resolution 7160, the Salt Marriage Penalty Relief Act, was introduced on January 31st, the same time that they passed the other bill. This is the bill that the Speaker has promised to bring to the floor because Republicans from higher tax states had threatened to essentially tank the House, right? Just, just block things. I mean, they claim they don't want to do it, but they have the power to do it. There's no question. Uh, unless they had a vote on salt cap relief. Now, originally, when Speaker Johnson basically was elected Speaker, one of the promises he made, and as you'd be aware, with this narrow majority, you had to make a lot of promises. And sometimes the problem is your promises seem somewhat contradictory. But in any event, he made a promise to these Republicans uh, who all feel a bit threatened. Most of them ran in districts that in the last presidential election, the, their districts went for Biden. So they're concerned that that could swap, you know, that, that they're at risk if they can't show they got something for their district. So they're pushing hard for some sort of relief on the salt cap. Speaker Johnson had promised them when they voted for him last October that he would not bring a tax bill to the floor in this year was his term, which was a little weird that they didn't push for more than that. But they wouldn't bring a tax bill to the floor this year, which really meant he was going to kill the four that were out there that had passed Ways and Means unless it included a, you know, a specific SALT relief, state and local tax deduction relief. Okay, now, obviously what's happened is, well, it's not this year. So in theory, you could say, well, my promise doesn't count. It's not 23, it's not 24. But they could say, yep, and we, we promised not to shut everything down. But you know what? It's 24, not 23. So now we're back to an agreement that he could bring a limited short-term SALT relief bill would be brought to the floor for a vote. And that allowed him to secure the passage of House Resolution 7024, which is the short-term bipartisan extenders package, because it had no salt cap relief. So he's agreed it's going to come to the floor. It's going to be given a vote. Now, prospects for this bill are a little bit interesting, but we'll talk about when we get there. Let's talk about what the bill would do. Now, Section 1 of the bill, there's really only two, there's only two sections, and Section 1 simply names the bill. So don't worry too much about that. Section two, uh, basically sub, you know, subsection A of section two of the bill is where the real language is found. And the important thing to note is if this bill was passed, 
we would amend section 164 B6, which is where we find the SALT cap, the $10,000 state and local tax cap, would be amended that would say, in the case of a joint return, it's important to note, this would only affect joint filing status returns, would not affect single or head of household returns. For a taxable year beginning after December 31st, 2022, and before January 1st of 2024, meaning basically 23 calendar years. This is a one-year-only patch. So it'd be your tax year beginning in 23. If you have a fiscal year client, tax year beginning in 23 is when this would count. And only applies if the taxpayer's adjusted gross income for such taxable year is less than $500,000. Then you will substitute 20,000 for 10,000. So basically, uh, that's how it would end up working, meaning that the limit would be 20,000. Realize it is a cliff. So the $500,000 adjusted gross income is a cliff. Go $1 over and you lose, you know, you lose 10,000 of the state local tax cap. Um, but it would apply and only for 23. So it is a one year only fix. It is a relatively expensive fix. That's the reason why it's one year only. Because a lot of money got raised to pay for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act via the state and local tax caps. Um, yeah, you know, you'd have to keep your eye on it. It is a one-year fix. And as it said, it would be effective for tax years beginning after December 31st, 2022. And obviously becomes irrelevant once we get to uh, 2024. So basically apply for 23 years only. Now, it's not clear that there are the votes available to pass this bill, especially if they have to bring it to the floor via the same emergency, via the same suspension of the rules measure. Two-thirds in favor of this might be tough. And obviously, there is some blocking going on. Uh, you're hearing complaints about not following regular order from both members of the Freedom Caucus and various Democratic progressives, which is interesting group that they're both concerned about the, uh, shall we say, regular order, but they are. Uh, the idea being that they want it to go back and go into the House, go into Ways and Means, after which it may never escape. Or it, or in theory, the Democrats will try to get it changed in there to bring it up higher and put pressure on. So yeah, there, there's a lot of maneuvering going on. Not clear if this thing has the, has the legs to pass, and also not clear if it has the legs to pass in the Senate even if we got out of the house, right? Also, if this were to pass, there is no way the IRS can automate refunds arising from this provision. We talked last week about the IRS automating the child tax credit changes and that they can do, but this one, no. So the good news, I guess, is most people aren't impacted by this. And what I mean by that? Well, here's the catch. You know, most of our clients, are probably you know at the let's say the levels that we're looking at here for taxes they're probably not itemizing so it doesn't matter if they're at the twenty grand or ten grand um, but there are and there will be some though and there'll be some for whom and this is the reason why the IRS can't really fix it uh, where this is going to make the difference between itemizing and not itemizing on the return right that extra ten grand would make it so itemization was a better out. Now, the other catch you get, though, obviously, as we get to more SALT state local tax deductions is the AMT may come into play. So, right, if you've got a client that's already got AMT problems, which we have fewer of, but you could, that'll also be in there. 
But your clients that are impacted by this, meaning those that have it, that are itemizing deductions, that do run into the 10,000 cap, they're an interesting group to decide what to do with as we approach tax season, especially if it looks like this might get traction. Uh, just be aware, it's one more thing to think about and one more thing to be worried about. Also, it only applies for 23. And the bad news is, had we known this, then you might have accelerated some tax payments into 23. But nobody knew this was being proposed for one year only fix. And who knows what happens for 24. I expect they will try to discuss this again for next year. It looks like you spend less money as long as you do it one year at a time. So we may see this as part of an extender vote, an attempt next year or attempt end of 24 in the lame duck Congress. That would be a possibility. Kind of depends upon how the election goes in that regard. Okay, IRS announced in IRS basically news release 2024-24. Uh, 2024 tax filing season starts as IRS begins accepting tax returns today. Taxpayer help expands this year with more in-person hours, better service, and improved tools. As you should have been aware, the IRS began accepting returns on January the 29th for the 2023 year and reopened acceptance of returns, individual returns for 2021 and 2022. So they restarted the acceptance process of those. Remember, IRS suspends the time, individual return acceptances usually about a month after the October 15th extended deadline, and they pick it back up normally in mid-January. This year, it kicked back to the 29th, but they are accepting returns as of now. The IRS reminds everybody this year, because it's, you know, it's now become interesting about when returns are due, that this year, for most of the country, the returns are going to be due on April the 15th of 24 for 23. The key exceptions are Maine or Massachusetts, where returns will be due on April the 17th. They're due on the 17th because, get my history right on this, the, 16th, the 15th is Patriots Day. And so the service center there is closed that day. So that kicks one day out. And then the uh, 16th is Emancipation Day in District of Columbia, which counts because of how the federal rules read, therefore meaning that April 17th would be the due date for uh, taxpayers in Maine or Massachusetts. Right? They have an extra day to work with. Now, as was noted there, the IRS does describe in the notice uh, increased in-person hours this year from the IRS. They claim they're going to improve their telephone service. And the one thing that probably you would be kind of a highlight and you probably that we interact with more than a lot of the other than these taxpayer assistance items is the where's my refund page. They are saying the page has been updated and this year will provide more detailed and easier to understand information about the status of a taxpayer's refund. So you may want to, you know, check that probably, you know, take a look at that a couple of times. Maybe if you have a refund coming yourself. Uh, take a look at it, see what it looks like this year and how it's running. Uh, get a sort of a feel for where's my refund and what might be different there. Because I know we often have to send clients there who want to know why, well, you know, why haven't I got my check yet? Especially clients who didn't want to take direct deposit. Does heaven help them if the bank knows what their bank account is? I try to explain to them if you're sending them a check at some point, they know your bank account number. They know how to get in your account. But nevertheless, we have that issue. But they're the ones inevitably they're calling two weeks later and want to know, well, I haven't got my refund yet. It's because you decided to do it with paper. You know, you decided to get a paper refund, but that's where you'll send these people when they have that problem. Okay. 
The agency does announce it expects to receive 146 million individual income tax returns this year. So that, you know, prior, by April 15th is how they approve that. Now, the uncertainty about profession, uh, potential tax changes does complicate our filing decisions right now, as mentioned earlier. We do know that if the Bipartisan Act passes, obviously, if the Bipartisan Act passes and the state and local change, they, if neither one of those pass, none of this matters. There's nothing to fix. But if one or both of those pass, we do have a problem. Uh, we do know the child tax credit. There, the IRS should be able to recalculate refunds and the law tells them to do this. So you should be able to calculate the fact that your taxpayer should obtain a larger child tax credit. In the odd cases where that's not true, then you'd have to file a claim for refund. But for the most part, those would be automatic. But all the other changes, pretty much the IRS doesn't have any way to automatically correct them. Right? We don't really have an auto correction for 174 research credits. We don't have automatic correction. Well, Base, I guess we might for bonus depreciation, but that's you know, you'd have to go out to 4562s and get a little more complicated, especially with different items in there, and especially if any depreciation needs to be capitalized. So, my guess is they won't touch that one. Uh, we also have the uh, business interest expense limitations again. There are too many variables. I think they'll decide they don't really, it's not safe to touch those. You're likely to have enough cases being wrong that you'll have an issue. And as I said, state local taxes, the taxpayer goes from not itemizing to itemizing because limit went from 10 to 20 grand. Obviously the IRS won't have that data. So it does appear that there are a number of cases and a number of clients you can identify where you're going to say, well, I don't know if I want to file this right now because if these law changes go in, you know, we might need to do an amended return. Right now, probably you're not sending out a bunch of those because a lot of these returns are, that would have those issues on them are going to be a bit more complicated. Uh, and so therefore arrive later in tax season. But as you have them, it becomes those issues to discuss with the client. Here's your option, client. We can, you know, we, we can sit and wait on the return. Um, if we do that, we're probably going to hit a point where I'm going to tell you, we got to extend the return. We don't have time to get all these returns done. We can't finish every return in the last week. If Congress were to suddenly pass this law on April the 7th, you know, you got to tell a whole bunch of clients. I, I know that we now know the answer, but we don't have time to process everybody that wanted to wait for the answer. So you're just going to have to amend your returns. You know, you're just going to have to either go for extension or file the returns as is and then amend because obviously even if Congress passes it, it will take time for the IRS to update forms and the like. So I think you'll quickly hit the point where I tell clients your choice is file it without the law changes, you know, and if they get changed, you got to amend and you'll have to pay for the amendment or accept an extension because, you know, if they don't, if this thing doesn't get passed, until middle of March or late March, you're just going to get into a problem where it's not going to work. You won't have time for the tax software to be up, for the IRS to update their systems, for the tax software to get updated, and then for all of this to get through and through your standard review processes after the returns are finally done and you know through to the client. So I think I have to explain to clients sometime in early March, 
and might want to start explaining to them now if they come in, they bring stuff in, that because of this, you know, you may tell you need to tell me, do we go for the extension or do I go right now, prepare the return as is, and we're going to file it. And then, you know, there'll be an amended return, which, by the way, probably won't be done until after the extended due until after the regular due date. Right. Not our, you know, it's not our fault that Congress decided to do this. You have complaints. Go talk to your congressperson and your senators. They, they can explain to you why it worked like this. And I guarantee you they'll blame the other party because that's how this works. But I'll tell them, and I wouldn't believe them when they tell you it's the other party that did it. Uh, everybody has a hand in this one. So it's a standard mess. Congress just believes that doing things late is no problem. Uh, except that it is. But that's another issue. Finally, I wanted to refer you to an article written by Kelly, Kelly Phillips Herb. It is uh, entitled, How One Small Click Led to Big Headaches for a Tax and Accounting Firm. It is on the Forbes online site. It is, as recall, also part of a new newsletter that Kelly is doing for Forbes. Uh, Kelly is an attorney uh, from the Philadelphia area. She's you know tax specialist. Uh, and she's been writing these articles for quite a while uh, on Forbes. She did for a while. She was writing for Bloomberg. But now she's back on Forbes. So we're over there on that side. So somebody who, uh, you know, has a pretty good background on writing the tax matters and has practical background. Her newsletter talks about the case of a Texas CPA firm that fell victim to a phishing email. And this is a cautionary tale for how your firm can end up with some major and expensive headaches uh, through a slight, a slight, you know, Clip in you know a minute or two. Somebody under pressure. Somebody not paying total attention because they have lots of work to do. I can't imagine that ever happening in a firm. Uh, you know, ends up doing something, and suddenly client data is out there. So that's part of what this case discusses. In this case, they had a part-time staff member who received an email purporting to be from Microsoft for an Office 365 password expiration notice. Now this, and she actually has a copy, you know, an image of what, of what the person got. She got this from the firm. And look, it's going to look exactly like emails from Microsoft look. You have the proper logos, the proper information. And this one did not have spelling errors or grammatical problems, right? Don't assume that's how you're going to pick it out. Uh, there are ways technically to pick it out, uh, but the average staffer probably has not been trained on how to figure out what that is, especially when you use mail programs, and a lot of them do, that hide the address that was used and just put the claim name. And obviously the claim name of the sender is going to be Microsoft here, right? That's just how this works. Um, so the staffer got that. It said, click here, your password's going to expire. So she was asked to go on the quote-unquote Microsoft website, which, by the way, that's not where she sent to. That's the other problem with clicking these little buttons and emails. Um, unless you really know what you're doing, and actually there is even a way using scripting to fake the little, the address that could show up if you hover over it. But generally they don't bother with that because most people don't know about the hover over it anyway. Uh, you can be sent someplace else. That's why it is very, very dangerous to ever click a link in an email. And I say that knowing that 
we end up probably sending clients emails like that on our own because clients can't figure out how to do anything else, right? So eventually you just got to handhold them through. But that is a dangerous, dangerous thing to get used to doing. Uh, I would tell anybody who has a statement like this, instead of clicking that little email, just go log in to your Microsoft account. And if they need, if you know, if your password needs to be updated, you've probably been aware that you're, you know, back, so Thompson Reuters now has changed it. I think the other vendors are doing it too. They've decided that constantly having to change your password is not necessarily a good idea. And so now we've gone to other measures, uh, at least Thompson Reuters has. Uh, but if you're, I remember in the day though, for Thompson Reuters or for CCH, because we used to use CCH, you know, that you'd get on the website, and you'd be told, hey, your password needs to be changed, right? You just, when you opened up your tax software, you knew you had to change the password, right? Things like that. So just trying to log in, it would tell you, you got to do a password update. But in any event, she clicks it, she enters her, you know, account, she enters her, you know, email address and password into that site. And, you know, and they even offered to let her keep using the same one, or so that was hilarious in the email. Uh, but, you know, but she had to go back on and log in to do that. What she just did, of course, was not change her email with Microsoft, but she gave her credentials to the attacker who then logged in on Microsoft 365. Now, Microsoft 365, there's a reason why they're going to go after Office 365 or Microsoft 365. Because the most popular email program for accountants, CPA firms, is Microsoft Outlook. And, you know, working with Outlook and Microsoft hosting is used by a large number of smaller firms. Because A, hosting your own email server is a pain and is a security problem in and of itself. So what they know is most likely, because these people say, well, I got to get Office 365 anyway because that's how I'm going to get Excel, how I'm going to get Word, they're going to use those. So they go ahead and they, they take the email hosting. Yeah, there's a real good chance you can get their Office 365 password. You can get access to email. And the neat thing about getting access to email is your email address is what all of your other software, your tax software, your, you know, your portal, etc. That's what they all tend to use if you ask for, oh, I forgot my password. You can, you can execute password resets all over the place once you have control of the person's email address. So losing control of her Outlook email address, which is what she did, ends up happening to her, that opened up the door for resetting a bunch of passwords, which then gave the attackers the same access this part-time staff member had, which generally is going to be to all kinds of client, you know, confidence client details, because how do you prepare a tax return if you don't have access to that data, right? So that's one of the big problems she ran into. Now, after she responded to the notice and she updated her password, the firm did get notices from Microsoft about unusual downloads occurring. And they immediately traced it to her account and they shut down her access. But unfortunately, it takes some time for that Note that to get noticed and somebody to move forward on it. And in the interim, what happened was they were able to go in and do a password reset on access to the firm portal, which of course, like a lot of firm portals, is where a lot of client data comes in 
and where a lot of client data resides. There's back and forth there, right? Copies of returns. Remember, your portals are sold because you can have clients that have one-stop shopping, right? They, they don't bother you for copies of the returns. They can just go there and get them. Obviously, the bad guys, knowing that they, they could be on the clock, are going to rapidly go in and start downloading as much as they can from the portal, uh, hoping you know to see how much they can get before somebody stops them. And clearly, they got a lot of stuff. And generally, we're not totally sure what they did because we don't know for sure what goes in. And that's, in fact, what you had to bring in outsiders. The damage had been done. The attackers had obtained confidential client information. And now the firm had a major problem on their hands. As you may guess, it, it's a real nightmare at that point. Uh, essentially, what the firm had to do was, well, contact their insurance carrier. They did have, they did have insurance that covered cyber attacks. And the article does discuss a lot about some of the things to watch out for in cyber insurance. And, you know, they, they were able to bring in, but they had to bring in, they had to get legal counsel. And legal counsel had to assist them on notifications to clients required under state laws. Because generally, if the data is leaked, we have to figure out who's leaked. And it may not be client, may not just be client data. You know, let's say that you had a client and you had prepared the W-2s for their Schedule C business. You have all their employees' personal data, and those people have to be notified, right? We have lots of notifications going on here, right? What's required under state law? In many cases, you've got to notify the attorney general of the state that there's been a breach. You have to get in, law, in line with them. You have to get in line with law enforcement. Uh, you know, you need to start, you need somebody to come in forensically, try to figure out what damage did they do? What did they get access to? You know, they very well could have put other things in the system. You don't know at this point how damaged you are. You do know you've been damaged. Is this solely a cloud level situation? Or did as long as they had her attention, did they manage to install some malware onto her system that then was transferred to the other machines in the network? Because inside the wall were all, to quote the old line from The Wrath of Khan, you know, the original one, you know, we're all one big happy family. Right. That means that if you get an you get some sort of infection system running inside the network, quite often our defenses are all outward focused. You never assume that there's going to be an inside the inside the wall attack, which is what could happen here. So it's messy, expensive, and it, your reputation is going to take a huge hit. Right. You know, because you're going to tell clients, hey, we lost your data. And yes, you're going to provide them with credit protection and other things, but yeah, it, it's a really, really bad look. And you're probably going to lose clients over it, right? It's probably going to be that bad look. You're going to lose clients over it. You may have some claims against you over it. So be aware of all the problems that can arise from this, right? And the other thing important is, this article, which I really, you know, which I really recommend you read to get a chance, uh, it does indicate that no one is too small to be targeted. Now, you probably have to register with Forbes to get access here. Unfortunately, Forbes loves to do that. Um, so in order to read it, you're going to probably have to register. As I recall, you can register for Forbes without actually paying for subscriptions and you'll get in. But yeah, 
Okay, just take that with a grain of salt. That's why we're discussing this somewhat here. Um, so here's the catch. Your firms. Everybody listening to this operates under, at least I'm assuming you're, I, you know, if, if, if your business is, I don't know, you know, you, you own 30 car washes, not sure why you're listening to this podcast, but okay. But so I'm going to assume that you're in the tax processing business, tax, tax business of some sort, whether it be preparing returns, whether it be tax advice and tax in some way, shape or form. So remember that if you're in tax preparation, any way, shape, or form, you operate under specific IRS standards that are applicable to preparers. You operate under probably Gramm-Leach-Bliley rules that are applicable to you as a financial institution. And if you're a CPA firm, effective January 1st, 2024, you also are operating under new rules added to the Statements on Standards of Tax Services, specifically the data protection rules found at SSTS section 1.3. That were added effective January 1st. So be aware of that. Now, what steps could the firm have taken to prevent or limit the damage in this case? And there are two key ones highlighted in the article. And by the way, both of them are also discussed in those documents from the IRS and from the AICPA at the new standard. One key thing that would have helped some, right? Uh, if they had required all password-based systems, right, for so logins, to require to use what's called two-factor authentication. Now, I know many of you hate it. Many of you think it's a pain and you try everything in your power to avoid using it. But in a situation like this, that would have been probably one of the most effective blocks might not have blocked losing control of Outlook. And that's because losing control of Outlook, it could have been what's called a replay attack. In a replay attack, when she went to the fake Microsoft site, there could be people that are sitting there waiting for somebody to come in. And as soon as she came into the fake Microsoft site, There'd be a person sitting at a computer, or there could be even a script to do this, but usually a person's involved. That would, you know, okay, as soon as she puts in her password, her email address and password, that's easy to take, automatically send on to Microsoft. But if she has two-factor authentication turned on, Microsoft is going to require her to essentially authenticate back. And the authentication is going to be probably you know, you're going to immediately see that pop up on your screen that you need to authenticate and what method would you like. In a replay attack, somebody's going to, somebody's going to have it set up so that screen uh, is going to be copied effectively and revised. So now it comes up to come back to their server. And so they're going to say, you know, which way do you want this to come? As I recall, Microsoft tends to do it. And she clicks the way she wants to authenticate. With two-factor, we then provide, you know, the bad guys provide that to Microsoft, who then goes through now the process of, you know, getting the codes. As I recall, Microsoft usually lists three codes. I think three codes show up on the phone, and one of the codes is on the screen in front of you. So we get that code from Microsoft put on the screen. We put it on the screen. She clicks in. That's a replay attack, right? Well, they'll get control at that point, and they can reset her password almost certainly from that position. 
However, they would have probably had a problem at the portal password chain. Because if the portal system requires a second factor, she's not sitting there trying to change her portal password. And suddenly, you know, they're being asked for the code. Now, depending upon how the portal two-factor authentication is set up, they might send her an SMS, right? They might have a one of those things that does pop up like Microsoft on the phone, and potentially, like we used to have with Thomson Reuters, you know, all you had to do is click a button saying, yes, you accept. Uh, if she clicks that button, we're dead. But if she thinks for a second, wondering why is the portal wanting me to approve, um, then you have a chance of catching it. By the way, really important, your staff needs to understand, if let's say you've got one of those where the you know approval comes back to their phone and they just have to click yes or no. If they start getting a bunch of those, you know, they click no, and as soon as they click no, it comes back again, and then they click no again, and it comes back again. They, they should stop everything at that point and report the incident. But the problem is they want to get their work done. And so since no is not getting rid of it, invariably they click yes. And that lets them in. That, that's why I much prefer the pure generated number on the phone version of this. Uh, because that one, generally, they don't notify you back except on the web page. The bad guys in this case have no real easy way to notify her, I need your code. Um, yeah, they'd have to set up a whole nother way to try to trap her. And again, that much time would have probably stopped the whole thing, regardless. The other way you got to deal with this, and this is also, like I said, two-factor authentication, every one of those documents regulatorily will strongly suggest that one of the steps you should take is set up two-factor authentication for every system you're using. We have it set up in my office, our main email accounts, which are not Outlook-based. Um, yeah, I will tell you that. We do have Office 365 accounts. We do have things set up. We do not use that for our email. And part of the reason I don't use it is security. I don't want a fact that somebody who's thinking they're losing access to Excel providing the, you know, the keys to the kingdom by opening up their Outlook account, by opening up their main mail account. Okay, but we do require two-factor authentication for that. Our tax software obviously requires it, right? Everything that is sensitive should require two-factor authentication. You'd be required to have that. You also wanna make sure you train your staff in likely security attacks. Phishing is the big one. And the thing to remember is that email is going to look legit. It's going to look absolutely legit. So your clients, your tech, you know, your staff needs to be aware of that. Yes, your security software will stop many of these attacks. Not all. You know, some of the servers, like our email service that we're using, is generally very good at catching these, right? And flagging them as likely problem and pushing them into a whole different directory so they're not in our inbox. So we can go review them if we want. Uh, but, you know, but they're, they're, they're not just dumped in our inbox to click on. But still, brand new attacks from time to time get through. It's something you got to be aware of. So you're going, you know there are going to be attacks that get through to your, to your client, to your staff. If they click those boxes, if they respond, if they go to the phishing site, you can be right in the same position as this firm in Texas was. 
without any problem whatsoever. So training is important. As I said, both of these precautions are specifically mentioned in the statements on tax standards on tax services change that took effect on January 1st of 2024. So if you're a CPA, it's going to be really easy for somebody to try to get damages out of you if this happens to you this tax season. Okay, because we're going to say, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do what the standard says you're supposed to have done? Okay. Also, be aware, the IRS already put out a warning a couple weeks ago, which this happens every year. Yes, the new client scams are out and about. We all, hopefully, you know the new client scam. They send an email. They're looking for a new CPA or a tax preparer, whatever they're looking for, right? And they want to know if they could send you their information. Now, as you get in the middle of all that, it clearly, eventually, they're going to try to load something on your system. Normally, a key law, normally a remote access program of some sort using some exploit. And you can buy these exploits off the dark web. You, you know, they're actually for sale. You, you can get them to exploit whatever. Uh, they're going to try to do that. Your clients, your staff should understand not to open new client emails um, and to be wildly and very, 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 very suspicious of anything claiming to be a new client email. It's somebody looking for an, a new firm. You don't want to open those up unless you have some other reason to expect them to come. Uh, you know, they, they've gotten good to saying, oh, I, I was, you know, Charlene told me to do this. And, you know, they're, they're going to say they will never give a last name. Charlene apparently has no last name. But they're saying that on the assumption that there's a chance you have a client whose name is Charlene. And you might just skip wondering who. Right to go by. So assume they're bad. Uh, they're definitely, I will tell you, the biggest way to catch most of these is to learn, check the literal from email. Also, be very suspicious if there appears to be maybe a legit from email, but it's coming via some odd server. Like I had one this week. An email looked kind of legit, could be legit, but it was coming to me via a third-party server that made no sense. Why would this domain's emails be served via this other server that has no direct connection with it? Uh, one of the reasons it may be is because, in fact, it's not really coming from that server or that area. You know, so be very careful. Quite often, they also just simply don't even bother. They just have a totally, you know, email address that makes no sense whatsoever. Why is this guy who supposedly is located for me, let's say here in Phoenix, and is, you know, trying to find a new CPA, the CPA retired after 20 years. Why does he have an address that appears to be coming from Spain? From Japan, right? Even though supposedly, you know, he's, he's, he's telling me this thing, you know, he claims he's got all this history, then in case he's just like living in Phoenix and has been here all of his life, why would he have a, a Japan-based a Japan email address? He could, but it's way less likely. It's more likely they got control of some account and they're just spamming stuff out of using that account. And obviously they realize that, yeah, we need to have, need to have a name that looks more appropriate whoever we're scamming. I'm certain from that same address, if they're scamming somebody in Mexico, yeah, the, the name will be different, will look more like what you would expect there. If they're scamming someone, you know, in, let's say, scamming somebody in France that have a French name, 
right? They'll, they'll make it look more legit. They'll have the background story, uh, but they'll keep using that email address. So just be aware, these are expensive and you want to make sure that you don't get caught by these. So this has been the current federal tax developments for the week of February the 5th, 2024. Current federal tax developments brought to you every week by Kaplan Financial, uh, Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. You can find me online. If you want to email me, edzollers at currentfortaxdevelopments.com. If I have time, I'll try to get back to you there. Otherwise, I also monitor the Connect sites for Arizona Society of CPAs, New Jersey Society of CPAs, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington to some extent. And I also take a look at discussions on the Idaho Discussion Board. It's not technically the Connect program the other societies are using, but I do look in there. Otherwise, uh, take care. Hopefully you're having a good week. Uh, I will hopefully get back to you next week uh, as we're coming back the day after the Super Bowl. So we'll see how all that turns out. But in any event, see you next week as we head further into tax season. And we head for one more week looking at whatever happens in current federal tax developments.